I remember vividly in 1987, at the age of 10, watching with my parents on television the breaking news of two scandals that brought down a Christian television empire. Reverend Jim Baker was accused of sexual misconduct by church secretary Jessica Hahn, which led to his resignation, and his illegal misuse of ministry funds, which led to his imprisonment. I remember at that young age, naively thinking, how could a Christian and a pastor at that do such a thing? But fast forward almost 40 years and a lifetime of experience. Sadly, it no longer surprises me when Christian leaders are disqualified for spiritual leadership because they succumb to moral failings, have uncontrolled anger issues, are involved in financial mismanagement, have character and toxic personality issues, and fall into various temptations and sins. But it's not a new experience. Abraham, Moses, David, and numerous other biblical leaders failed in significant ways even after walking with God. Vince Antonucci writes, A few years ago, a man by the name of Dr. Robert Clinton studied the lives of 3,500 Christian leaders. He discovered a growing trend of leaders who were unable to finish and finish well. Among his findings, Clinton found that the majority of these leaders, number one, experienced a plateau in their leadership. Number two, felt their passion and effectiveness slowly subsided. Number three, dropped out of leadership due to burnout or a moral failing. Number four, struggled with their health and individual growth. If Dr. Clinton recalculated his research today, the numbers would be far worse. We've seen a rash of Christian leaders disqualify themselves in the last couple of years due to sexual affairs, addiction to alcohol or drugs, mistreatment of employees, abuse of power, and burnout. Interestingly, this crisis in leadership isn't a new issue. Dr. Clinton identified 49 leaders in the Bible for whom we have enough data to evaluate their entire lives. And out of all of them, only 13 finished well. Therefore, my friends, I believe it is important for us to be aware of five things as it relates to sinful acts in a Christian's life so that we will not be surprised. Simply put, we should not be surprised by five things. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 8 as we study verses 2 to 12. John chapter 8, verses 2 to 12, as we see what these five things are. I read now verses 2 to 4. Now early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. The Bible tells us that Jesus was teaching in the temple courtyard area in Jerusalem, with many gathered to listen to him speak. While there, his usual antagonists, the Pharisees and scribes, approached him and brought before him a woman who was caught in adultery. Now, there is no doubt that this woman committed what she was accused of. She was caught in the very act of sin. Now, we don't have much background about this woman, if she was single or married, if she was a prostitute or not, if she loved the man or not, if this was her first time or her 20th time. We simply don't know, and frankly, it doesn't matter. What was being stressed by the Jewish religious leaders is regardless of the circumstances and possible justification for her actions, this woman fell into sin. 
And my friends, this is the first thing we should not be surprised by. Number one, don't be surprised when people with a sin nature fall into sin. Don't be surprised when people with a sin nature fall into sin. As unbelievers sin and will sin, so too Christians sin and will sin. As Christians, we still have a sin nature that won't be eradicated until we get to heaven. You see, when we place our trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, who died for our sins, our past, present, and future sins are paid for by the blood of Christ. So at that moment, we are declared righteous or justified, meaning we will be able to enter heaven and be in the presence of our holy God because of what Jesus did on the cross. However, justification does not mean we as Christians won't continue to sin as we still have a sinful nature which battles with our new nature in Christ. In fact, Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 26 speaks to this. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 18, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Kenneth Worse notes, The choice lies with the saint. He must develop the habit of keeping his eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus and his trust in the Holy Spirit. The more he says no to sin, the easier it is to say no, until it becomes a habit. The more he says yes to the Lord Jesus Christ, the easier it is to say yes, until that becomes a habit. However, while we know this to be true, we don't often live it out. So we must remember this reality, that while Christians should strive to be spirit-filled and sin less than non-Christians, it doesn't mean Christians will not sin nor commit the same sins as unbelievers. We should not be surprised when Christians sin because the same temptation is there. The difference is that as a Christian, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can have victory over these sins. But as a Christian, it is still our choice whether we will follow the Spirit's leading or to follow our own fleshly desires. If you don't believe this to be true, just look at yourself. As a follower of Christ, if not Spirit-filled, think about your susceptibility to be tempted into lustful thoughts and sinful actions, or the ease in acting out on your uncontrolled anger and rage, or putting up with pride in your heart. If you think to yourself, I will never commit this or that sin, it will never happen to me, be warned. You leave yourself unguarded, and I can assure you, you will easily fall into the very sin you said you would not fall into. You see, as Daniel Henderson puts it, our spiritual enemy is brilliant, an expert in human behavior, and evil in all of his intentions toward every believer. He is especially so toward spiritual leaders not because they have greater intrinsic value, but because their demise is strategic. I'm often reminded that in bowling, it is very difficult to get a strike if you don't hit the head pin. Here's a truth we must all understand, Henderson notes. Satan's most relentless temptation in our lives is not the lure of blatant acts of moral stupidity, but the daily willingness to neglect our love for Christ in the smallest of ways. Lucifer knows that the great commandment is to love the Lord with all of our heart, 
soul, mind, and strength. So neglect entices us to a partial, prefunctory affection for Christ while maintaining the outward activity of a Christian life. Soon we leave our first love while still embracing sound doctrine like the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. Eventually, our spiritual core is compromised. Our love wanders from Christ to the empty allure of the world. Calamity creeps and captures us with unexpected ease. Christians, and especially Christian leaders, are not perfect, and they do sin and make mistakes. That's why it's important not to be caught up in a personality-driven culture, even in the church. We should not admire a person so much that we feel they can do no wrong and put them up on that proverbial pedestal, thinking they must have the perfect life and have the perfect marriage and have the perfect family life. As a pastor's kid and a pastor myself, I can tell you from personal experience that we do not have a perfect family. I did not grow up in a perfect home. While we all strove to be Christ-like, we often fell far short. We all have blind spots in our character because of sin, which needed to be called out. And because we can all sin, it is important to set up layers of accountability where people are able to freely rebuke and criticize, and you can humbly take and accept it. And that's why our singular focus as Christians should be on Jesus Christ. He is the one we should be drawn to and look up to. While fellow Christians and even Christian leaders may fall and fail you, Jesus Christ will never fail you. My friends, again, don't be surprised when Christians sin or fall into sin because we all have a sin nature, and that's why we must look only to the Lord and live spirit-filled lives. I read now verse 5. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? The Bible tells us the Jewish religious leaders challenged Jesus and said that the Mosaic law stipulated that those caught in adultery should be stoned to death. They asked Jesus what he would do. Of course, they were trying to trap him with this question. They wanted to see if Jesus would go against the Mosaic laws or try to preserve the life of this woman. You may ask, where's the man, this woman's partner in sin? Because the Mosaic law stipulated that both parties should be stoned. We don't know. Perhaps he escaped. But the Pharisees didn't seem to care about justice. They just wanted to trap Jesus, the Bible tells us. Now you may wonder why the God-given Levitical laws in the Old Testament which no longer applies to us today in this age of grace, as the book of Galatians so clearly declares, seems to be very strict and harsh. Why did God institute such a law for the people of Israel? You see, for hundreds of years, the people of Israel didn't live in a relationship with the living God, especially when they were in Egypt. After Moses delivered them and brought them to Mount Sinai, God wanted to teach His people how to be set apart from how the world lived and to show what a set-apart life a holy God expected of His people. They were to live differently from the pagan world who indulged in sin and lived all around them. They were to hate sin. They were to be angry at sin. They were to know sin's devastating and destructive effects. And they had to know and understand that the wages or price of sin is death. Simply put, the Mosaic laws were severe, 
because God wanted the people of Israel to be aware of sin, hate sin, and know its devastating effects and deadly consequences. Therefore, this is the second thing we should not be surprised by. Number two, don't be surprised when you are angry with sin and the devastation it causes. Don't be surprised when you are angry with sin and the devastation it causes. My friends, it's very natural to be angry at the sinner and the one who caused the breakup of a relationship, the embarrassment to the family, the downfall of a company or institution, or the collapse of a carefully crafted image. But know that it's also all right and natural to be angry with the ugliness of sin and how it destroys families, friendships, relationships, and even the individual themselves. Sin provides temporary fun and pleasure, but leads to lasting and wide-ranging damage. I hope you will hate sin and be angry with its devastating effects, just as God intended as evidenced in the Bible. When a leader falls morally, whether because of financial issues, mismanagement, anger and character issues, or sexual sins of any type, it doesn't just affect him or her. It affects his or her family. It affects his or her sphere of influence as the trust is now gone. It affects the wider community who looked up to him or her. So don't be surprised if you feel angry towards the person who committed the sin, knowing that the sinful act affects so many. But let me encourage us to refocus our anger and hatred at the sin and its destruction so we will avoid it. God hates sin, and so should we. When Jesus' close friend Lazarus died, and he wept with his family. The Bible tells us in John chapter 11 that Jesus was deeply moved. The Greek word there implied a feeling of anger and outrage. So what was Jesus angry about? He was angry and troubled because of all the weeping and sadness associated with death, which was brought about by sin. He wasn't angry at the people. He was angry about sin and its effects, which is weeping, despair, and sadness. My friends, you can see the heart of God through the heart of Jesus, God Himself. He could not bear seeing the people He so loved undergo the pain and anguish caused by sin and death. That's why God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, to provide a way for salvation from the terrible effects of sin. My friends, when we feel angry with the sinner, the sin, and the devastation it causes, we should allow ourselves to grieve and mourn the loss. I like how one person answered a written question about how to deal with the issue of a leader who falls into sin. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that there is an internal battle raging in you right now. Part of you is still reeling from the revelation and trying to reconcile the fact that a man you respected who taught about things like integrity and honesty was apparently more able to speak those truths then live them out. Additionally, I'd bet that you're a mix of angry with him, feeling betrayed, sad for him, sad for your church, and maybe deep down inside, just a tiny bit relieved that God and truth have gotten the final word here. Maybe, maybe not. In any event, you're deep in it. You've experienced a real loss akin to death or divorce. It's a terrible blow and one that you can't sweep under the emotional rug and keep a stiff upper lip about. 
Ramesh Richards adds, one of the demonic ways to react to a fallen leader's sin is to engage in gossip. Unfortunately, we cannot stop people from speaking about a leader's sin. People will even add juicy items to spice up the stories. They become conveyor terminals for gossip and broadcasters of the failure. Instead of gossip, however, there needs to be grief. Grief moves through several stages. The grief cycle begins with denial. It is unbelievable that your esteemed friend has fallen. You may also find it difficult to mention it to loved ones. Second, anger may settle in. This anger may be against the leader, his or her spouse, or even God himself. Why does God allow great Christian leaders to fall was a question I was recently asked at a youth retreat. After anger, compromise becomes the attempt to cope with something unbelievable but undeniable. It may include rationalization and explanation to cope with the sad reality. Fourth, depression, remorse, questions, and pain are often present. The final stage of the grief cycle is acceptance and reconstruction. Life must go on. We must come to terms with reality and truth if we are not to be consumed by neurosis. Now look at me at verse 6. This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. The Bible is clear. The intention of these religious leaders was to bring this adulterous woman before Jesus to trap him and get him to say something that would incriminate himself. They assumed Jesus would not call for the stoning of this sinner. But if he didn't advocate for her severe discipline, then he would be against the laws of Moses. Then they would have him. These religious leaders were not only judging this woman whose sin was clear, but also judging the intentions and actions of Jesus. In fact, throughout the Gospels, we see that these religious leaders have been judging Jesus because he wouldn't and didn't conform to what they were advocating for. You see, we should not be surprised because people are by nature judgmental. And this is the third thing we should not be surprised by. Number three, don't be surprised when people fairly or unfairly judge. Don't be surprised when people fairly or unfairly judge. It is a game for many. People will judge you regardless of what you do, whether right or wrong. They will judge you even if you have the best of intentions and the best of plans. But while they think they are judging fairly, most of the time their best judgments are unfair. Why? Because not only do we not have all of the evidence, we can't read in the hearts and minds. And we all look through the lenses of our own filters, bias, perception, and life experiences. That's why the Bible warns us to be very careful when we judge others, since we are limited in what we know. Since we are limited, then we should leave the ultimate judgment to God. Romans chapter 12, verse 19 reminds us of this. Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourself, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. My friends, because God's judgment, especially His final judgment, is fair, no one will get away with anything, and He alone can perfectly balance grace and justice. That's why only He can say, vengeance is mine, I will repay. 
And since we are limited in what we know, then let's leave the final judgment to our unbiased Lord. Now look with me at verses 7 to 9 of John chapter 8. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. The Bible tells us, when Jesus first wrote on the ground, perhaps they didn't take notice of what he was writing or didn't care as they continued to press him for an answer. But the Bible tells us, Jesus rose up and said to them, those who have not sinned, then you be the first to throw a stone at her to enact your judgment. Now, let's not misconstrue what Jesus was saying. Jesus was not saying we cannot judge because we're all sinners. That's why certain people in their God-given authority have the earthly right and responsibility to pass judgment like parents over their children, civil judges over the affairs of the secular world, and church elders over spiritual matters in the church. The point Jesus was making was that according to the Mosaic law, the accusers needed to be innocent of the particular sin of the accused. So we must remember, before we judge others, we have to look at our own lives. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 to 5. Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 to 5, about judging others. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite! First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, we're not told in the Bible what Jesus wrote on the ground. Whatever he wrote must have been pretty convicting and convincing because the accusers started to leave one by one with the oldest first and then the younger ones. Perhaps Jesus wrote their names and their secret sins, which no one knew about except themselves. That would have been pretty convicting and in fact, quite scary. If, for example, I were to know of your secret sins and I were to reveal it this morning, something like John secretly watches pornography regularly, or Jane is secretly envious of Diane's life, or Sally secretly cheated on her test, or George is secretly unethical in his business dealings, I'm sure you would not want your sins publicly stated. It's interesting that it was the oldest religious leaders that left quickly and left first, while the youngest left last. Perhaps the younger ones were more idealistic and wanted justice for this woman right there and then, while the older ones quickly realized Jesus' point and recognized that if the same judgment and justice that they wanted were to be applied to them, they would be harshly judged for their own secret sins. But the Bible simply tells us they walked away because of their conscience. You see, my friends, we all want justice harshly and quickly applied when we see injustice, often without any due process. But when it comes to our own case or applies to us, if we're under the same judgment, we desire grace to be extended and love shown. So as it relates to judgment, let's treat others as how we would want to be treated. But don't be surprised 
when people fairly or unfairly judge. It is natural. Now look at me at verses 10 and 11 of John chapter 8. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, who are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The Bible tells us that Jesus noted that there were no more accusers to accuse the woman of her sins. And so Jesus told her, I don't condemn you as well. You can go. But admonished her to sin no more. Was Jesus letting her go without any penalties or discipline? It is established fact that she was guilty, having been caught in the act of adultery. No, he was not, because it was in his power and authority to do so, because Jesus would die for her and for her sins. He would pay the penalty himself for her adulterous actions. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 to 6 is clear. Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6, speaking of the Savior Jesus. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, Jesus was not giving this woman a free pass, but he was showing his heart of love, grace, and mercy when he says he doesn't condemn her. Jesus isn't defining her by her sin. She isn't the adulterous woman. She was just the woman. As God, Jesus could look into her repentant heart and knew her sorrowful mind. And from his perfect assessment, perfectly balancing justice and grace, he chose not to condemn her. This is a reminder that if our Lord can forgive and restore, we too should be careful not to define others by their sin if they have truly repented of their sin and have truly changed, just as we would not want to be defined by our past sins before our changed life. Jesus said to her, go and sin no more. He was telling her, you have been given this new opportunity, go live a changed life which I'm sure she did, because from certain death, as per the law, to having no one to accuse her, she got her second chance at life. My friends, this is a great reminder of what Christ does when He redeems us. He takes away the penalties of our sin and puts it upon Himself so that we can walk free. And it's totally not fair for Him, but that's why it's called grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespass, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You see, the fourth thing we have to remember is number four. Don't be surprised when God forgives and restores because of Jesus. Don't be surprised when God forgives and restores because of Jesus. You know, there's always a natural tension and even battle between enacting justice and showing grace in our human minds. As someone notes, at times, grace and justice seem to be in a tug of war. Grace and justice appear to be in opposition, not in sync. Grace sometimes gets positioned as the opposite of justice, 
in that grace, working with mercy, offers second opportunities to seemingly undeserving people. Justice sometimes gets positioned in black and white terms without room for compassion, a cousin to grace. We may even begin to wonder if grace and justice can coexist and work as partners instead of antagonists. We know God to be holy and righteous. As such, He serves as the righteous judge over His creation. His righteousness calls for Him to judge unrighteousness. Because of the fall in our sin nature, all humans fit into this category. At the same time, God demonstrates His love by offering us grace and mercy through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. We cannot fully explain why He offers His undeserved grace and mercy to us, but we can and should be thankful that He does. He carries out justice and grace at the same time, and this is where we need His wisdom and His character in our lives. We must seek Him to understand how to act in His character in this world, showing grace and justice to all people, all of whom are created in His image. Those of us who have a high sense of justice wants full justice, and we want it right now. But in reality, life doesn't work out like that. When we see Christian men and women not get what we believe they deserve in our eyes, so we may get angry at God. But we have to remember that it is not that sin is brushed under the table or covered up. It is because their sin has been paid for by someone else, namely Jesus Christ. For example, if someone borrowed a million pesos from you and you lent it to them even though you needed it, but then they squandered it away because of foolish living and are unable to pay you back, you would want justice and you may want to have them thrown into jail or suffer greatly in life because of what they did to you. Now, would you mind if someone else paid off their one million peso debt owed to you? I'm sure you wouldn't because you get your money back. Although in the back of your mind, you may still want a little punishment for them because of their foolish living and the squandering away of the money. But frankly, that is none of your concern because you have been fully paid back what is owed you. The debt obligation has been paid back. This issue is now between the borrower and the gracious man who paid on his behalf what sort of retribution and action he wants to take. And if he requires from him nothing and simply says, learn from this lesson, then what is it to you? I hope you see my point. Read the parable of the wages in Matthew to see this principle brought to life. As long as the price has been paid, as long as the wages have been paid, you don't get a say in how unfair it is if grace is shown to the offender. You don't get a say in how unfair it is if grace is shown to the offender. My friends, how wonderful it is we have such a gracious God who loves to show grace and mercy. As someone growing up who had a very high sense of justice and wanted everything to be fair and right, I've changed. Because as a recipient of God's amazing grace and receiving grace from others throughout my life, how can I not change to also allow and show grace to others? I've noticed that generally, those who are the recipients of grace and acknowledge it are more gracious to others. Now listen carefully. Grace is not an excuse for bad behavior. Grace is not an excuse to sin. But since we live in an unfair, sinful world, 
then we can err on the side of grace and let the earthly authorities God has appointed to enact temporary judgment and allow the all-knowing, all-seeing God to handle the ultimate and final judgment so we can be at peace. I now read verse 12 of John chapter 8. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. This is the verse that many people have memorized, but it's interesting that this declaration of Jesus as the light of the world is set in the Gospel of John contextually right after his interactions with this adulterous woman. But when we think about it, this encounter really illustrates this great truth. To a person who had no hope like this woman, fully guilty and brought for what would have been a slam-dunk sheer judgment, the intervention of Jesus Christ brought her hope and another chance. That's exactly why Jesus is the light of the world. Those who follow Christ do not have to walk in darkness anymore, he declares. Hopelessness has given way to the light of life. From death unto life, this is the message of hope and grace that Jesus Christ brings. And this is a message that will be attractive to a fallen, hopeless world. My friends, in a broken world full of people who've messed up, who think they are too evil or too bad to save, in a world full of people who have made mistakes or people who think they are nothing or ugly inside or out, comes the declaration that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. My friends, Jesus can fix your life, not only temporarily, but permanently. He can forgive the worst of sins and restore you into good standing with the Heavenly Father because of the redemption through His Son, Jesus Christ. He says to everyone, there is hope and light in me because I graciously take on your sins and brokenness and put it upon myself so that you can have hope, joy, and peace. This, my friends, is a message that resonates with the world. And this is the fifth thing we should not be surprised by. Number five, don't be surprised when the world is attracted to a message of hope and grace. Don't be surprised when the world is attracted to a message of hope and grace. This is what the world is looking for. A dark and broken world is looking for hope and grace. We all want grace for ourselves. If we're looking for justice for our lives, we may not like the judgment because the Bible is clear in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death. It's eternal death. A world that is looking for true justice on this side of heaven will not find it, and those searching for it will become very bitter and angry. Because apart from Christ, life is unfair and hopeless. Remember the story of King David? He was a man after God's own heart. But that doesn't mean he always made the right choice. In 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, we find out that David chose to disregard God's word and stole another man's wife, Bathsheba. Then to make sure he didn't get caught, he arranged for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, to be killed in battle. David clearly did not fear the Lord and had forgotten that nothing can be hidden from his sight. When the prophet Nathan confronted David about his sin, however, David didn't make excuses. 
He confessed his sin and asked for forgiveness. David received consequences for his actions because God is just. But because God is also gracious, he forgave David of his sin. David knew there was nothing he could do to earn forgiveness. If we can read his beautiful psalm of repentance in Psalm chapter 51. Let me read verses 1 to 12 of Psalm chapter 51. David's words. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. My friends, if someone like King David can be forgiven and restored by God for what he did, even though there were severe consequences, it is a message of hope and grace that the world will be drawn to. My friends, we are all sinners saved by grace. And as a church made up of broken but saved people called to do the work of God, people sinning or caught in sin will not derail the work of the church. Because God is still victorious, Satan cannot and will not win. Let us renew our focus upon Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith, and continue to faithfully do the work of the Great Commission without being distracted. But in the meantime, number one, don't be surprised when people with a sin nature fall into sin. Number two, don't be surprised when you're angry with sin and the devastation it causes. Number three, don't be surprised when people fairly or unfairly judge. Number four, don't be surprised when God forgives and restores because of Jesus. Number five, don't be surprised when the world is attracted to a message of hope and grace. My friends, as followers of Christ, let us err on the side of grace, thankful that God forgives and restores, and be settled knowing that fair and final justice is in the Lord's hands. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for showing us your heart. You are a God of holiness and justice, but you are a God also of grace and mercy who loves to forgive and restore. And you are able to do that because you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on our behalf to pay the wages of our sin so that you can grant grace into our life. Thank you for this, Lord. And Lord, as recipients of grace, help us also to show grace and love in return. We are all sinners who are saved by grace. Help us to be understanding, caring, and accepting. 
Father, I pray that you would challenge us with your word, that you would help us to understand that even if we experience injustice in this life, that your justice is always perfect and fair. And so we can just leave it in your hands and be at peace. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your encouraging words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.